You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. Misleading stories, conspiracy theories, outright lies. This election cycle seems to have been targeted by disinformation on an even larger scale than 2016. But also growing larger this go-round, the anti-disinformation response. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, we're going to hear about what it takes to push back against election disinformation. In the first half, we'll be speaking with one of the online researchers tracking digital falsehoods through all corners of the Internet. The U.S. election is effectively the disinformation Olympics. And then in the second half, we'll discuss the fact-checking role of good old-fashioned journalists and why their job has been getting a bit more complicated. Media have been basically belligerents in a war declared by the administration early on. But first, as we said, we are going to start with a look at the impact of digital disinformation over this election cycle. For that perspective, we're welcoming on now to the program Alex Stamos. He is the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, also formerly served as the chief security officer to both Facebook and Yahoo. Alex Stamos, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Hey, thanks for having me. So when we talk about disinformation this cycle, what we're largely talking about is the false or unfounded claims of voter fraud, basically uh, widespread attempts to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election results. We've seen an overwhelming flood of online postings carrying these falsehoods uh, since Election Day. And uh, in a second, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the specifics of what that all has looked like from your vantage point But first, I think it would be helpful uh, for our listeners to hear a little bit more about your work. So the Stanford Internet Observatory, uh, your mandate, as I understand it, is to track down online abuse in its many forms. What has your job looked like since Election Day? Yeah, so for the election, we've actually teamed up with a number of other institutions. We created this thing called the Election Integrity Partnership, and that's our group at Stanford, as well as the University of Washington, uh, the Atlantic Council DFR Lab, and a company called Graphica in New York City. And so for we have about 120 people who are studying election disinformation in the cycle. And what we've done is we've teamed up with external partners, such as local and state election officials uh, and uh groups like Common Cause, the NAACP, and other election uh, security uh, and election rights advocates. And we've been looking ourselves for election-related disinformation. So that's specifically disinformation about the mechanics of voting, how to vote, uh, disinformation that tries to discourage people from voting, and especially this year, disinformation about the outcome of the election uh, or implying that the election was stolen without evidence. Uh, And part of our goal was to not just understand what's going on, but to try to have an impact in real time. All of these institutions were very likely to write a report of this is what election disinformation looked like three or four months down the road. And instead of just doing that, what we wanted to do is have real-time impact. And so when we we find a piece of election disinformation, we try to measure it against the policies of various platform companies, and then we report it directly with them. So we have partnerships with Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube, uh, Reddit, TikTok, and some other companies. 
Um, and so why we got involved in the election is, you know, we've done a lot of work studying disinformation around the world. The U.S. election is effectively the disinformation Olympics. Uh, this is, you know, every type of online disinformation, every technique that we've seen over the last several years is being deployed in the United States. So if we want to have an understanding of where the internet is going and what will become the mechanisms by which people will try to manipulate one another in democracies online, we have to pay attention to this election. Yeah, and just to put this all in context for us, I actually want to bring in a quote that I saw from you. Uh, you were quoted as saying, this is the most intense online disinformation event in U.S. history. Uh, that is quite the claim. Wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're responding to there. So I think if you look overall at the breadth of people who are posting election-related disinformation, uh, there's really nothing close to measure to this. If, if we look at, you know, 2016 is the, the election that everybody talks about, especially around Russian disinformation, and the things, that, the amount of content that was posted as well as the engagement of the number of people that saw or sh shared or interacted with pieces of content is absolutely nothing compared to what is going on this time. And the reason for that is that this time we're not talking about foreign trolls. We're not talking about bots or lots and lots of fake accounts. The vast majority of the disinformation is being pushed by verified American influencers, people for whom we know exactly who they are, um, but they have very large audiences that they are able to spread disinformation to, and then they can get those people to share that information over and over again. Right. And uh, among those verified American influencers would be President Donald Trump himself, how does that complicate your work? The fact that a lot of these postings that you are addressing are coming from American politicians, including the president. I mean, as soon as you are uh, pushing back against the president or, or uh, anybody that he's associated with, that uh, immediately brings a, a lot of partisanship into play, a lot of uh, polarization, a lot of politics into play. H how do you navigate uh, uh, that aspect of things? Yeah, well, that's a good point. And, and you're right. that It's very hard to judge this without immediately running into the fact that some of the biggest spreaders of election disinformation uh, is one of the candidates, is President Trump himself. Um, so we are a nonpartisan organization. We're, we're trying to make these judge judgments completely neutrally. Uh, but we also don't shy away from pointing out situations when uh, a verified influencer, a member of the campaign, uh, or a surrogate of one of the candidates says something that's not true. Uh, and while we have pointed out disinformation coming from both sides, pretty clearly, especially in the post-election period, the vast majority of it is coming from supporters of President Trump, or in some cases from his own accounts. Um, this is a challenge, uh, and it is a big challenge for America. For the, the social media companies, I don't think we add a lot of value pointing out to Jack Dorsey what the president's tweeted. I'm pretty sure he's he's completely aware of that. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the the false narratives that are being pushed, and then to find all of the situations in which they get parroted by smaller and smaller accounts. And that's one of the patterns we see, is that you might see the president all of a sudden pick up on a false narrative. So for example, today he tweeted about uh, vulnerabilities in election software that led, he claims, to hundreds of thousands of votes being switched away from him to Joe Biden. That is completely and totally false. It was in fact uh, proven false by his own Department of Homeland Security. But after he started talking about this, the name of the company involved, um, the the made up code name of the vulnerability, uh, those kinds of things all of a sudden became extremely popular on social media. And so one of the th things we're trying to do is to see when those narratives are injected by 
the influencers with the very large audiences, and then to find all of the different ways in which that message gets supported by fake evidence um, or gets amplified over and over again. All right. So some examples right there of the disinformation that is getting passed around. Wondering if next you could talk a little bit about the social media platforms themselves, because there has been a lot of change between 2016 and 2020. New platforms coming online, uh, new ways that those platforms are getting used. For those of us who do not spend our entire day online, what should we know about? What's out there and what's playing a big role in this disinformation ecosystem? Yeah, so there's you know, some interesting differences from 2016. First is the explosion of different platforms. You're right, there's a bunch of companies that either didn't exist or weren't really uh, that important in 2016 that are now very important. Uh, the best example of that would be TikTok, right? TikTok has basically come out of nowhere to become one of the most popular social networks among young people. Um, they have lots of video content. A lot of that video content is politically charged, and we have seen a bunch of disinformation there, so we've been working directly with their team, and they've been pretty effective uh, in enforcing the rules. They still have a lot of things to do, but like we do have a bunch of new platforms like that. The other big difference in 2016 is the vast majority of what we're dealing with now is is domestic, right? And so, you know, there was a big focus in 2016 on the foreign influence, uh, mostly of Russian groups. Um, and that's where the large tech companies have actually done the best work, is preventing a replay of the Russian activity. Uh, and we saw in the run-up to this election, a bunch of takedowns of coordinated operations between mostly Facebook and Twitter, a little bit of YouTube, and some of the smaller companies uh, of operations where they'd go out and they'd find the accounts that were being created by Russian actors, Iranian actors, North Korean actors, and the like, and taking them down. In some cases, it looks like that information that was provided them to allow that to happen came from the U.S. government. And that's the other big difference in 2020, is one of the real problems in 2016 was election disinformation was nobody's job, right? There was nobody in the intelligence community or the FBI who was dedicated to tracking disinformation actors from our foreign adversaries. And there was nobody in the tech companies whose job it was just to think about this problem. That's changed. Now there's these big dedicated teams that are working with each other between the companies, but also between the government and the companies. And so like on the foreign side, we're doing much better. The problem is, is on the domestic side, we're doing worse. Um, and it's also just legitimately a harder problem to deal with because instead of having kind of a clean rule about a foreign adversary having lots of fake accounts in which they manipulate the election, it's much harder to come up with rules of what is the allowed speech about the election from verified American users, especially ones that have very large followings. All right, going to pick up on that point in just one second. Real quick, I want to remind listeners that we are speaking today to Alex Stamos. He is the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. And uh, talking about the steps that these companies have taken during this election cycle to push back against some of this uh, misinformation, there have been a lot of very visible steps that we've seen, uh, the likes of Twitter, on Facebook, uh, YouTube as well. Uh, we, 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 those of us uh, on these social media platforms have seen all kinds of steps, whether it's been uh, the labeling of posts, whether it's been the obscuring of posts to indicate that they have some kind of election disinformation on them. Uh, we've also seen entire accounts blocked, taken down. So uh, a number of actions that uh, tech companies have been taking, how effective has that all been? So it has been somewhat effective. And, and you're right, there's like a whole set of different options that companies have here. They can take down content, they can ban accounts. That's the most aggressive. The less aggressive moves they make is often to apply a label or to make it hard to reshare something. Um, for the most part, though, I think they have not been quite aggressive enough, especially with the people with very large followings. What we're seeing is that 
people that have half a million, a million, two million followers are continue to re, to violate the misinformation policies over and over again. Because while the companies might take individual pieces of content down, they generally have not been punishing the top level account. The only real exception to that would be Steve Bannon, who ended up getting banned from several platforms because he had a video that called for violence. Um, and so they will be really aggressive about explicit calls for violence. But for the actual election disinformation, where people keep on saying things that are just completely not true about the election, uh, about potential vulnerabilities or it being stolen, um, they can do that over and over again. And it's become almost a badge of pride for some of these folks that that's happening. So I think the big companies are going to have to deal with the fact that a lot of this problem is coming from the users that also drive the most engagement. Um, and especially when you talk about a platform like say a YouTube where money flows through from advertising to those people, I think they're going to have to think about the relationship they have with their most important creators or influencers um, and to hold them to a higher standard that, than they hold normal users. Right now, the companies generally hold the big users to a lower standard. And I think that's inverted. All right. Well, uh, we only have a few minutes left in the program. And uh, before you go, I actually do have one more question that I'd like to put to you. Uh, that being on kind of the, the broader response to this that we're going to make as a society to the problem of online disinformation. And uh, we, we did see reports earlier this week of an aide to the incoming Biden administration speaking out uh, pretty strongly against Facebook and, and their role in you know, being a platform that has so much disinformation, uh, perhaps suggesting that the Biden administration would take a tougher line, maybe even introducing new regulations, changing regulations. And this is obviously something that we're all going to have to confront in uh, the years to come. So uh, I, I know that this is a really complicated issue, and we, we certainly can't do it justice in the few minutes that we have left. But uh, just hoping that you could leave us with some parting thoughts, what you would hope um, uh, more folks would keep in mind as we try to, you know, weigh through uh, these, these really difficult decisions that we're going to have to make. Yeah, well, so one of the interesting things that's happening is both Republicans and Democrats are mad at the companies, um, and they're both threatening the same laws that protect the companies from responsibility for speech that they carry, um, but they want totally different things. So because of this labeling issue, uh, now the, the tech CEOs are being called back to Congress again, where I expect Republican senators will be very angry about the stuff that they have done for the election. Um, whereas you said, you've heard from the Biden transition that they're upset about the things that have not happened. Um, I expect what we're gonna see is you're gonna start to see the big companies call for regulation. And they're gonna call for regulation because what happened in Europe is that after a, a series of violent events, you saw regulation start in Germany and then spread to several, several other countries. And what you've seen there is that the big companies have actually benefited from regulation. One, because they have the scale and the money to hire the people to comply with all these laws, but also because it takes the responsibility away from drawing the line of what is acceptable political speech. And I, what I expect you're going to see is that, the, that big companies, like especially Facebook, are going to want Congress to set these rules of what is disinformation around the election, what is unallowable disinformation around COVID information and such. I don't think we'll get any regulation because it looks like we're going to have a split uh, between the parties of the White House and, and the Senate but they're going to start calling for it because they're in this somewhat untenable position of whatever decision they make, both sides are going to be angry about the compromise that, that was made there. Um, and, you know, for now, those companies have that responsibility, but I expect that they'll try to push that responsibility off to others. From our perspective as citizens, we've got to think about 
what kind of rules do we want to apply to our speech? It's, it's really easy to say, I want this person I disagree with to be censored. I want this person's content to be labeled or I want it to be taken down or limited. It's much harder to come up with rules that we feel comfortable being applied to ourselves and to our own political allies. Um, and I think that you know should be the way that we think about these things. Instead of just criticizing the speech that you see from the other side you don't like, you should also propose rules that you think would, could be fairly applied both to yourself and to the other side. And that is going to be the trick to try to do that in a way that's compatible with the free expression uh, laws and the First Amendment that we've uh, ideas that we've had in this country for a long time. All right. Uh, a lot to think about right there. Uh, we have been speaking today to Alex Stamos. He once again is the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Alex Stamos, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, lies really do seem to be traveling faster than the truth these days. We're discussing disinformation during the 2020 presidential election cycle. We just heard about the effort to push back against the flood of digital misinformation online. Up next, what's the role of journalists in all this? With a steady stream of unsubstantiated and false claims about voter fraud flowing from the White House over the past week, newsroom have been aggressively fact-checking the administration, even at times cutting away mid-news conference. Complicating this work, though, widespread and growing mistrust among many Americans, especially conservatives, of mainstream media institutions. We're going to talk a little bit more about this media mistrust and what it means with Ed Wasserman. He's Dean Emeritus at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, also a professor of media ethics. Professor Wasserman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So digging into the polling data just a little bit, uh, we can see that trust in media seems to be low across the board in the U.S., but among conservative Americans in particular, it's especially low and seems to be getting lower over time. Uh, we'd like to get into a little bit more depth about why that is in just a second. But to start out, uh, the upshot for our purposes in this program today is uh, when that mistrust is so widespread the job of the fact checker gets exponentially harder. You know, it's just, it's much harder to tell someone, believe me, he's lying, when your own credibility is so low, is it not? Well, uh, you put your finger on a, one of several key issues, uh, but it's also interesting, I wanna point out that you've made that connection between media mistrust in the media and accuracy, as if correcting and making sure that the facts that the media are providing are scrupulously confirmed and are, are true. And I would say that the decline in trust in the media um, is something that has not necessarily been linked to the belief that the media are purveying false stories. Um, and, and I think if you go back, say, to the late 1960s, when the vice president under President Nixon, uh, Spiro Agnew, uh, pioneered the, um, the, 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 the denunciation of the media uh, as a political tool, um, he was not talking about the media being inaccurate. He was talking about the motives that the media were pursuing and the agenda they are trying to foster and, 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 and foist on the American people. And it was an agenda that sought to discredit uh, traditional values. It's an agenda that sought to, fo uh, to foment um, 
opposition to the Republican administration. Uh, it was not so much that the media were lying. In fact, that he rarely was saying that. He's saying, well, look at the agenda they're pursuing. And I think that nowadays, the media sees on evidence of mistrust as if it could be corrected by more zealous attempts to run corrections and to pursue inaccuracies. Uh, and I don't know that that's the case, because I think that the kind of mistrust we're talking about goes to motive. It goes to whether the media are acting in good faith or whether they are acting to advance an agenda of their own. That's a much harder uh, a case to address and to try to refute. Well, let's talk about a few of the recent examples that would likely stick in the craw of uh, many conservative Americans. Uh, we could point to the very recent coverage following the uh, when the election results became apparent. Uh, you know, mainstream media institutions, supposedly middle of the road institutions, you could you could sense the celebratory mood coming out of those newsrooms. It was not hard to detect, especially uh, in cable news, broadcast news. You, you could tell there were a lot of happy reporters uh, given this uh, election result. Uh, go back a little bit further. We could also point to the controversial decision uh, by the New York Times to print an op-ed uh, from an anonymous member of the Trump administration, it purported to be a senior White House official, ended up being not quite as senior as we thought. A lot of people questioning whether that, you know, that critical opinion piece about the Trump administration really should have uh, been allowed to be anonymous. You, you, you take these sorts of things together, and it does speak to this uh, level of cred- credibility that you're talking about, what is the overall narrative that newsrooms are trying to project? So when those questions are out there, you know, newsrooms have to use their credibility somewhere. Is it perhaps um, uh, time to pick pick our battles as journalists to some extent? Well, I think that's a really good question, Keith. And I think that the, um, the fact that the media have been basically belligerents uh, in a war declared by the administration early on, uh, is it's, it's really important. You can't separate the fact that there's been an adversarial relationship between uh, some of the media. Now, I, I want to return to the fact that we are using this term, the media, to address a very, very diverse uh, and very robust population of people and of organizations who don't agree with each other on very much. Um, but um, it, it is true uh, that, the, you know, Donald Trump has decided that being at war with the media was a political, was politically advantageous to him. Uh, and let's just, the media are never the ones that benefit from that kind of a collision with a popular, you know, popular newly elected president. The media are, if anything, can be faulted correctly for wanting to get along and wanting to cozy up and wanting to maintain access and being more than willing to fawn and to deliver the stories that people in power want delivered. Uh, That is the unfortunate dark truth about our media. They are not DNA scripted to be adversarial. They are more or less scripted to telling the stories that the rich and powerful people who own and run the country want told. Mm. Uh, Now, when they're forced into a situation of adversarialism, and Trump has made no secret of it, it's been a tremendously advantageous storyline for him uh, from the beginning. Fake news, enemy of the people. It's yeah, it's very explicit. Yeah. Listen, and and the media have during from the from from the time of his emergence as a serious candidate, the media have played into that 
And if rather than punishing him in the most uh, powerful way that they can exercise punishment, which is by denying him coverage, they've lavished him with coverage and had a great deal to do with the success of his 2016 campaign because he was on the air all the time. Because why? And they thought that he was kind of a clown, he's not a serious candidate, uh, and that people would be able to discern the fact that he wasn't really prepared for, he wasn't really ready for prime time. And they were wrong because that kind of coverage conferred great stature on him, made him the central character in the political landscape, and ensured his election. So it's a very odd, uh, it's a very odd, it's a paradox that we have here because Trump delivered for the media and there's no question that he delivered them audiences that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten. And what MSNBC found is that when they didn't cover his rallies, their viewers went over to, the, went over to Fox. Uh, and so CNN and MSNBC, which didn't, which which clearly didn't like Fox, uh, didn't like Trump, nevertheless gave him inordinate uh, uh, screen time and helped to lubricate his election drive in 2016. So, funnily enough, this adversarial relationship uh, worked to Trump's advantage. It also allowed him to basically immunize himself against the kind of criticism that came out when it turned out he wasn't a very effective president and he had a whole lot of uh, skeletons in his closet and all of these other things that came to light when the media did their job, which was to do the due diligence on the person who was the most powerful person in the world. Um, so he was immunizing himself against that by warning his followers that these people in the media were up to no good and they were looking for every excuse they could and they were looking to discredit his presidency and to basically paralyze his effectiveness. Right. So it, it is a really difficult conundrum. And I didn't mean in my earlier comments to come down too hard on any given newsroom. Uh, it, it is genuinely difficult decisions that newsrooms do need to be making these days. And it, it just seems like there is a catch-22 at this point. Uh, when, when you are confronted with a falsehood, you can aggressively point out that falsehood. But uh, in the very same moment that you're doing that, you're convincing some of your audience that you, as you said, are a belligerent in this war and that that harms your credibility on some level. And, and we see evidence of this with uh, many conservative viewers uh, fleeing the traditional media establishments to institutions like Breitbart, to institutions like One America News, which uh, are more likely to confirm some of the president's false claims over the past several weeks. So uh, if, if you want to believe in those claims, you can find the news outlets that will support your ability to do so. I, I, I don't know. It, it does seem like a very difficult conundrum. What are your thoughts on uh, the steps that can be taken as a nation, as a, as a, as a media profession, to begin finding some answers? Let, let, let me back up for a moment and talk about the problem of falsity. I think this broad agreement that Donald Trump has in the way he's conducted the presidency uh, defied uh, numerous norms that used to govern behavior in high office. And one of the things, one of the most egregious things that he's done is to rather repeatedly utter falsehoods. Um, now, the press, the media, the, the, the customs, the, 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 the protocols that the media follow when they're confronted with falsity are fairly uh, well established. For the most part, uh, when somebody in office says something that doesn't, isn't true, uh, the tradition was find somebody else of equivalent stature to contradict that person and to point out the falseness of, of what was said. Um, 
And I think that at a certain point, the media decided that that gave too much uh, prominence and too much credibility to the initial falsehood. It's this false equivalency problem that you also see discussed in the context of uh, global warming. You have one pro-global warming guy, one climate skeptic gives the audience the uh, impression that this is uh, an even-handed debate. Right, right. There was a famous study done some years ago uh, called Balance as Bias, that looked exactly at the uh, coverage of global uh, of climate change and said by uh, positing that there was some equivalence, the uh, popular press um, following its own rules uh, ended up providing a, a, a version, a vision of what was happening with climate change that was completely at variance with what scientific literature said. Uh, but yeah, th th there was a problem with giving too much prominence, too much stature. So the media then, became, uh, took it on themselves to declare the statements that uh, Trump or his people were making as false. So we're seeing now it's become a routine part of uh, the way that news is written that uh, Trump's baseless allegations of electoral fraud, the notion of baseless allegations is now part of the news report. Now, I, that is something you would never have seen before. Uh, you would not have seen uh, Lyndon Johnson's baseless allegations of progress in the war in Vietnam, right? Uh, you wouldn't have seen Richard Nixon's uh, completely groundless claims of progress in civil rights, right? They wouldn't have said that. That would have been a source of legitimate controversy that would have been covered as most legitimate controversies are covered with some attempted balance. Or some and some the 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 uh, media regaining their role as the people who are refereeing rather than are combatants in the in the uh, battle in the public arena. Um, so if readers have the sense that the rules are changing, they are correct to some extent. Oh, I think they're very much they are correct, and I think that which goes goes back to where are we going? Well, we're going into a, a time of fraction. Uh, very much factionalized media. I think we're already there. So we need to be a little careful when we say the media, because people are finding media organizations that are providing them with information that is more compatible with their worldview. And, and the organization with Fox News and Breitbart and, and these other organizations that are coming up are feeding that kind of hunger for contemporary, for topical information. Uh, they're not always full of falsity. Uh, Breitbart borrows its, most of its information, aggregates its information from perfectly credible sources and may put somewhat tendentious headlines on them, but it's still uh, not, an, not an illegitimate place to get news. Um, and a small number, and unfortunately, this coincides with the general weakening in the news business, which is really important to remember. That's the context within which all of this is happening. So you're dealing with, and now you have this flourishing of right-wing media that are out there um, and, and are doing, they're serving a different cause and they're serving a different purpose. And they really have baked into their business plan the idea that they are identifying and nurturing and harboring and wanting to cordon off a certain readership or a certain viewership so they can sell that viewership to their advertising base. 
Uh, and it's dangerous because if they deviate from that, as Fox has found, when it bothered to point out the fact that Trump was losing the election, Fox now finds that it's basically provoked an insurrection among its core viewers. And nobody wants to do that. They fought very hard for that, view, that audience, and they are not about to lose them. All right. Well, uh, a lot of trends unfolding there. We only have a minute or so left in the program, and uh, I'm sure that this will be hard to encapsulate in just a minute, but uh, we're going to give it a shot. Uh, Given everything that we've been talking about so far, I'm just uh, curious what you see coming in the years ahead. Uh, Is this credibility gap? Is the media going to be able to, mainstream media going to be able to make any ground on this, uh, improve uh, their their level of trust among Americans, or are we likely to just see a continuation of all these trends that you're talking about? about uh, that are, are, are making this task so difficult? Well, I think you'll continue to have a flight to quality among the viewers and readers. And I think that what we're finding is that the when you say the mainstream media, uh, let, let's be specific about the, uh, the media that have the kind of reporting resources to be credible sources of important, uh, of reporting on significant realities that people need to know about. And I think those media are doing very well. They are prospering during this situation. The New York Times is a national publication with more readers outside the New York metro area than inside. And they also are relying on readership revenue, revenue directly paid by their readers for the lion's share of their money no longer advertising as strictly advertising based as they always were. So there are very strong signs that the media that are, that are doing very, very well are doing better than ever. And what you have is a pauperization of the other media and some decline in the kind of diversity that one could have expected in the past. But they're doing well, and I think you're going to see a comparable surge of interest in conservative media as well. What my hope is, is that there's a regrouping around some basic principles of of accuracy and truth-telling, and that the media are not so wedded to pandering to their core readers that they're unwilling to present them with information and viewpoints that are unpalatable to them. And that, that I think, is a challenge that the media media have in not driving away the people they currently rely on in the interests of pursuing kind of commercial viability. Uh, And there, you know, the, the problem, unfortunately, one of the lessons of the Trump ascendancy is that the media are, are willing to accept and to use and apply entertainment values in deciding how to script their own coverage. And they're willing to give airtime and attention and thereby give stature to people in the news who really don't, des- don't are not credible, don't deserve the kind of attention that they would otherwise get. And they give them that attention because they draw a crowd. If that is not a good enough reason to give people that kind of attention and to say implicitly that these people deserve credibility. A tough challenge for a lot of media outlets, to be sure, and uh, a lot of food for thought as well. We're going to have to round it out there for today, though. Uh, We've been speaking to Ed Wasserman. He is Dean Emeritus of the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, also a professor of media ethics. Professor Wasserman, thanks so much. Keith, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next time. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.